I like to be ultra prepared for these podcasts, and usually when I'm doing a solo episode, I have most, if not the entire script written out. But I've been working on this podcast for nearly two weeks, and every time I get an outline that I think will work, I change my mind, I sit down to record, it just doesn't seem right. So I'm actually recording this episode Monday night for a Tuesday morning release, and I am never, never that far behind. So I share that little tidbit with you for two reasons. The first is I'm going to beg your forgiveness if this isn't a perfect episode and I don't edit out some of those little pauses or uhs or mistakes that I invariably make. Please forgive me. This is minimally viable, but it still should be better for you to have this imperfect podcast than for you to not have the perfect version. The second reason I'm sharing this with you is because I want you to think about the idea of performing at your peak. I think we live in a society where we're really taught to kind of grind through things and just pound your way through. And there are certainly times when we just have to do that. But what I'm also finding as I do more of these creative projects like the podcast and the daily email and working on the book, there are times when I can pound all I want but my time is just very inefficient because I'm not making progress. And there are other times when I can fly through things. The podcast you're going to get in a few minutes is inspired by some work I'm doing with some teacher interns at Western Carolina University. That training is going to happen tonight. And so again, I've had this training outlined and been working on it for weeks and weeks. And when I sat down today to do the final preparation, I just looked at what I'd had and I wanted to tear it all up and start again. And yet I couldn't make progress. I spent a huge part of this day just staring at my computer screen, trying to come up with the ideas, trying to zero in on the themes that I wanted to hit. And I was just getting nowhere. Finally, I gave up. Pam and I went for a walk when she was done with her classes today. I came back and in 15 or 20 minutes, I detailed out my entire training and realized that the training, the main points of the training that I want to do with the students would make a great podcast for tonight. So again, I've spent weeks trying to prepare this podcast and nothing's worked. I beat my head against my desk literally, maybe, to figure it out today. But then when the time was right, in 20 minutes, I had it knocked out. Now, I'm not advocating for procrastination because this isn't about procrastination. I come up with really good stuff well ahead of time, <clears throat> well ahead of time, many times. But what it has to do with is understanding when you're operating well. So when you're in those peak productivity periods, that's the time to do the stuff that's super important. When you're beating your head against the wall and you're just not there, sometimes it's better to walk away from the tasks, even if it's one of your priority tasks, and go do something else that you can check off your list. All right, that's a long preface and an introduction to tonight's podcast, today's podcast, which is 
about positive classroom culture. I'm going to talk about what I'm doing with these teacher interns tonight and hope that you can pull some lessons from that that you can then turn and work with some of your early career teachers when you go to school today or back into school on Wednesday. All right, let's get started. Hello, colleagues, and welcome to the Assistant Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Frederick Buskey. We are all on a leadership journey. Every day, we have a chance to grow. Every day, we have a chance to help others grow. My goal and the goal of this podcast is to help you grow into being a strategic leader, a leader who puts people before purpose, who solves problems instead of treating symptoms, and who understands the difference between progress and action. Through this podcast, my daily email, and virtual programs, I'm working to build a network of inspired and inspiring school leaders. Let's get started on today's adventure and this unique opportunity to learn to live and lead better. Thanks for being here. I will begin with celebrations. Today, I am celebrating leaf season. It's October 24th. I live in the mountains of the Blue Ridge Mountains and Appalachian Mountains in far western North Carolina. And the hills are just a cacophony of colors. The oranges, yellows, reds, greens. It is just absolutely amazing right now. So Pam and I got out for a hike on Sunday and I am just celebrating being able to find time to appreciate the joy of living in the place that I live. So I mentioned at the beginning that I'm doing a training tonight with some teacher interns at Western Carolina University. And this is the second of the two trainings. The first one focused on building student relationships and on how to design and teach classroom procedures. So this is the follow-up to that. I can't remember if I've talked much at all about some of my recent work on classroom culture. I used to do a lot on developing classroom management, and I focused workshops around the themes of building procedures primarily, and then how we respond to discipline issues. In the last couple months, I've tried to reframe that with the realization that classroom management is only one piece of something that's bigger, and that thing that's bigger is classroom culture. The foundation of classroom culture is relationships. The second tier then is your classroom management and kind of the point of the pyramid, the smallest piece is classroom safety, not just discipline, but safety, keeping everybody safe. So that's the big picture framework that I've been using with these students. So we hit relationships a couple weeks ago and part of the management piece. And now we're diving into the second half of management and the safety piece tonight. There are three things that I want those students to walk away with. And I'm sharing them on the podcast because I think there are three things that often students don't get in their teacher preparation programs. That's true even if they have full formal preparation programs, but it's even more so for people that are coming from alternative licensure. So my hope is that in sharing these three things and how I'm going to teach them and work with these students, that there'll be something for you to take away with 
and go and share with your own early career teachers. So here are the three things we're trying to get out of this workshop. First, I want them to walk out with at least one solid strategy for troubleshooting one specific procedure. It's really common for teachers to teach a procedure to a class of kids and then not have the kids execute that procedure very well. And what I'm going to teach these interns is that there are three basic points at which that procedure can break down. The first place a procedure breaks down is that we didn't do a good initial job of teaching the procedure. The process of teaching a procedure involves teaching the specific five steps, three to five steps of the procedure, helping kids understand the keywords, but also helping them understand why the procedure is important. So teachers should be doing some metacognitive work in explaining why the procedure is designed the way it is. And then the other part of teaching involves rehearsal. So we should help the kids understand why the procedure is important, what we're trying to achieve, help them understand the steps of the procedure, and then we should rehearse it. So sometimes if all those three things don't get done, then your procedure is going to break down because we didn't take care of that front piece. So that's kind of a, a level one breakdown. A level two breakdown is about reinforcement. So reinforcement problems happen when teachers aren't consistent with their own procedures. And I was always guilty of that. I always determined every year that I would be strict on hand raising. I would teach hand raising, but then I would never, never use, I would not be consistent in its use. And I'd have kids shouting out and I'd respond to them even though they didn't raise their hands. So the first thing in level two, that reinforcement is for the teacher to use the procedure. The second thing is to think about a second round of rehearsals. Invariably, after you teach procedures, even if kids do really well with them in the beginning, over time, they're going to break down. So a lot of times we need to come back and re reteach or rehearse the procedure. And then the other thing that's really common is that we don't provide enough feedback and we especially don't provide enough specific feedback. So when we have multi-step procedures, maybe transitioning or working in groups, something that's a little more complex, it's important for us to consistently be giving students feedback to let them know when they've executed the procedure properly. And in giving that feedback, what we're also doing is giving support and encouragement to the students that may be struggling with that same procedure. And so if I just say, good job, good job, good job, but I don't actually get specific about why it's a good job, then I'm not really helping support students that might be struggling. So for example, if I get specific about, thank you, Joanna, for putting your book binder under your desk and keeping the path clear and safe. What I'm doing is I'm saying what the specific behavior is and I'm saying why that's important. So if Chester sitting behind Joanna just isn't attending to stuff, not putting their materials where I need them to be, if he just hears me say, good job, Joanna, he doesn't know why, what's going on. But when I say, Joanna, thank you for putting your books under your chair, then Chester knows what the behavior is. And then when I explain why, Chester's reminded of why that's actually an important behavior. So that's 
The other big breakdown that occurs, kind of a level two breakdown, is the lack of specificity of feedback. Finally, there's a level three breakdown, and this involves individual student support. There are students that will always, always struggle with procedures, no matter how great a job the teacher does in teaching, reinforcing those procedures, there are some students that are always going to struggle. Usually we can predict who those students are, or certainly after we've implemented procedures for a couple days or a week, we're going to know who those students are. And instead of fixating on how the students are being disruptive or being a problem, what we need to think about is why is a procedure breaking down for that student or what can we do to support that student? So if I know that Chester is always going to struggle when he, when he comes into class and he's not going to put his materials where they need to be, then I'm going to position myself near Chester's desk, right? I'm going to anticipate that he's going to need extra support. And when he sits down, I'm going to say, thanks for sitting down. Good job, Chester. Now, where do those, where do those books go? So I'm providing a prompt, but I'm doing it in a friendly way and I'm recognizing where he's been successful so that I'm not setting up a conflict situation, right? Because this is not trying to beat somebody into submission. I'm trying to support him so that he can engage in a positive performance of the procedure that we're working on. So being able to predict which students are going to struggle, which specific aspects of the procedure they're going to struggle with, and then coming up with where am I going to position myself? What kind of feedback can I give the student in order to help them to be successful? Those are really critical parts of a level three breakdown in procedures. Now, sometimes you'll have kids occasionally, not sometimes, occasionally you'll have a kid that just is blowing up a procedure, really working to tank it and make your life problematic. And that starts to move us from a procedural issue into more of a discipline issue. And that's something that I will address with these students later. But for this segment, the first big thing I want these students to be able to do is to be able to troubleshoot one procedure, to have some concrete ideas for what they can do at level one, level two, and level three. The second thing that I want them to do is to be able to recognize what is a true safety issue, to be able to categorize it into one of four categories, and then to be able to respond in the moment with the appropriate behaviors based on the category of what the student's doing. Previously, when I met with these students, I taught them to think about a safety event, a discipline event, as an iceberg. And that the actual event that we were experiencing with a student was like the tip of the iceberg. And everything that came that was below the surface of the water is all the stuff that came before. And so if all we do after the event is to look at the tip without looking at the underneath, all we're doing then is responding to symptoms because the behavior, the tip of the iceberg is symptomatic of what's happening underneath the water. And so when we have really important safety issues, we have three parts to that. One is proactive based on what we know is happening beneath the surface, what we know about the student. The second is reactive, what's happening in the moment. And then the third phase is restorative. 
how do we work with this situation afterwards so that it doesn't repeat? And so my second goal for these students is embedded in that reactive phase. How do I respond in the moment? So I like to categorize big student behavior issues, safety issues, as having two components. So the first is safety itself. Sometimes we have problems with kids that have to be treated outside of just our classroom procedures, and they're not actually safety issues. And other times they're real safety issues. Like someone is in harm's way mentally or emotionally or physically. So the first variable is, is it safety or not safety involved? And then the second variable is, is it disruptive or non-disruptive to the class? And so when you look at those two permutations, you come up with actually four types of behaviors. You have those that are non-disruptive and also not safety issues. So that might be a student that really isn't following your procedures or is purposefully sitting out of class, putting their head down and just not engaging with you. They're not disrupting other things. They're not threatening anybody, but still an issue that you're going to have to figure out how you're going to address. The second category is disruptive, but not really a safety issue. So the kid that is continuing to call out a million gazillion times or asking really bad, dumb questions, trying to kind of destroy your lesson, that starts to become disruptive to other kids learning. But again, it's not a safety issue. Nobody's being threatened or harmed by that. The third one is disruptive and a safety concern. So if one student starts, gets up to fight another student or is saying really, says something really mean and cutting to another kid that threatens their safety within the classroom, a lot of times those big explosive things, when that kid jumps out and throws a desk and tells you to F off, that's a disruptive safety issue. And then finally, the fourth kind is the non-disruptive, but a safety issue. And I think these are pretty rare. What comes to mind is a kid maybe that is threatening self-harm to themselves. So they've not done anything that's disrupting the class itself, but you become aware that maybe they are a threat to themselves. And so each of these four types of discipline issues should be reacted to in a specific way. And my whole reason for teaching this is I've seen time after time, and, and I've been guilty of it myself as a teacher, where I actually make the problem worse because I misdiagnose what the threat level is. I misdiagnose how it's being disruptive or not disruptive. I misdiagnose how much safety is a concern. And then I just start treating everything the same. There's an old saying, if, if all you have is a hammer, you begin treating everything like a nail. And so discipline issues are kind of like this. If all we have is a hammer, or if we see everything as a nail, then we're going to respond in ways that are counterproductive. So my hope is that by student, by helping students see these kind of four different types of safety or discipline issues and teaching them to respond in specific ways to those different kinds of issues, that that will equip them and help them to respond in ways that are actually constructive instead of making the situation worse. So this is probably one of those explanations that would be a lot better visually than it is auditorially, but this is a podcast and audio is all we have right now. 
Let me just run through each of those four again, and I'll tell you what the general strategies, any behaviors that you use, what strategy you should be trying to achieve. So if something is non-disruptive and it's not a safety issue, in the reactive phase, in the moment, during class, we should ignore it. If the kid's putting their head down, they're not disrupting anybody else, they're not hurting themselves, in that moment, we should ignore it. Because what we don't want to do is take something that's non-disruptive and push it into a disruptive issue. Now, certainly if you have a relationship with the kid, you can go and talk to the kid individually, but we don't want to do anything. We don't want to call them out in public or make a big spectacle of things. So generally, non-disruptive, non-safety, we're going to ignore that behavior. For issues that are disruptive, but not safety issues, what we're going to try to do is just diffuse the situation. So part of that is ignoring, part of that is curtailing kids as much as you can, or steering conversations or steering activities in a different direction, but just trying to minimize the amount of disruption that they're having with whatever behavior that is. When it's disruptive and it's a safety issue, our main goal is to contain it. So we want to create some kind of separation between the student who's in stress and the rest of the class. We want to try to take the temperature down by creating a safe space for all of our kids, including the kid who's having the meltdown. So I'm physically going to get people out of the way. I'm going to do whatever I can to get people focused on other things. And then I'm going to bring my own voice and tone and physicality. I'm going to soften that and bring that way down and attempt to kind of bring down the explosiveness of the situation. So I want to just contain and keep things from getting worse. And then finally, on non-disruptive safety issues, again, I think these are students that, that maybe are threatening self-harm, and that I need to intervene as soon as I can and get help. If I think a student is really in crisis, I don't want to let them walk out of my classroom alone, and so I do want to get help for them immediately. So there's a lot more depth, obviously, that we can go into here. What are the specific behaviors what are the specific strategies you can use to ignore, to diffuse, to contain, to intervene? But that's beyond this podcast. But again, I'm sharing this with you because I think a lot of teachers, most teachers that are coming into the profession can't think this way. They see a discipline problem and all discipline problems look the same. And so they're going to react with whatever tools they have. And if the only tool they have is a hammer, they're probably reacting in a way that's counterproductive. So if we can start to get teachers to think about where does this fall, right? What's happening in terms of disruption and safety here? And then to be able to slot in and think, okay, I know if it falls in this category, then I have three strategies and I'm going to execute these three strategies. If we can bring that kind of confidence and surety to our teachers, it's going to really decrease the explosiveness of a lot of these safety issues. And then the third thing that I want students to leave with is an understanding of how to get help for their highly stressed students. So remember, I just talked about the iceberg and the fact that everything that happened below the surface is what led up to 
the event that we saw that's the part of the iceberg above the surface. And as much as we can, we want to ignore, diffuse, or contain the situation in the moment. It's after the moment that the really hard work has to happen. That's the restorative phase. And the restorative phase involves three parts. First, an analysis of what happened and why it happened. And in the analysis phase, we are going underwater and we're trying to figure out what's down there, right? What led to the tip of the iceberg? The second phase of restoration is then support. How do we help the student make better decisions next time? How do we help them get the skills they need to cope with what they're dealing with next time? And then finally, the third phase is restoration. How do we help the student make right the damage that they've done so that we can begin anew and we're not carrying around old hurts? So that's the restorative phase in a nutshell. How do we help teachers understand what their responsibilities are in that restorative phase? Because I don't think they should be responsible for all three of those things on their own. So more specifically, what I want them to be able to do is to think about a triangle of support for kids. There's the student and the student's family at one end of the triangle. There's administration and leadership at another point. And then there's the teaching team, which is that third point. And so which of those members we pull in and how we kick off that restorative phase may depend on the severity or repetition of the problem that we're having with that particular student, but I'm going to teach them to think about four steps. The first step is to work with the student. Just go directly to the student. And again, this is after an event and process with them and see if you can problem solve together. Because a lot of times you'll get enough information in that or you establish enough connection with the student that they will want to cooperate with you and that you'll be able to help them make better decisions next time. Step two, if that doesn't work, is to engage the parents. Now, one of the things that I will teach these students is that early in your career, when you're having to make parent contacts, don't be afraid to go get your assistant principal or your principal and say, hey, will you help me make this phone call? Because remember, there are probably very, very few teacher ed programs in this country that have taught their students, this, the teachers, how to make a parent phone call. And I would wager there are virtually none that have actually had their intern teachers make parent phone calls with support and guidance. So step two is for teachers to work with the parents but be aware that they probably have not had very much preparation in how to do that. And so I hope you as school leaders are gonna be right alongside your early career teachers, helping them to do that, to reach out to parents and have constructive conversations. Step three then is engaging other teachers. If it's an elementary classroom and you're the only teacher that student has, well, you're not because there are specials and that teacher had that student had teachers last year, so go talk to them. If you're in a middle school or high school, then that kid probably has other teachers, so go talk to the other teachers because oftentimes they have answers. And then the fourth and final group to work with is administration or counseling or guidance, but that school leadership piece. Now, I'm very intentional about encouraging 
teachers to work through those other three layers, conferencing with the student, working with the parents, and then relying on their other teachers. Because I do think that going to administration with a student challenge should be the last resort, not the first resort. If more of our teachers are able to resolve things without involving you, that leaves you more time to invest heavily in the kids that really, really are going to need your help. The ones that 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 level of ice below the iceberg, below the water is massive. They're going to need your help. And so if we can help teachers to take care of more of the issues on their own, that's going to leave you more room to really support in those heavy places. Okay, I think that wraps this up. As I said at the beginning of the show, every idea or every way that I wanted to address this topic seemed to not resonate for me when I sat down to record. This did feel right as I recorded, but I don't know. Did I hit the mark or not? If you're inspired to let me know, I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, thank you for walking this journey with me. I appreciate being able to do this alongside of you. If you do have feedback for me, you can email me at frederick at frederickbuskey.com. If you want to learn more about what I do, you can go to my website at frederickbuskey.com. And as always, consider rating the podcast and leaving a review. It helps other people find it. I look forward to seeing you again on Friday when we recap this week's daily emails. I'm Frederick Buskey, and thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Assistant Principal Podcast. Cheers. Thank you.